0: Hey,
1: everyone, welcome into another episode of the Florida Sound Archive podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser. And today's episode features a guest who has been involved in the jazz music scene for over 30 years. Bruce Stalins is here from originally from Central Florida in the Orlando area. So we're really excited to talk a lot about that and that period of time where he was definitely at the height of his career uh, in Orlando. Bruce, how are you? Welcome into the podcast.
0: I'm doing well, Jeff. Thanks for having
1: me. It's a pleasure having you on. So I know we have a lot to get to, a lot of different periods of your career we're going to be talking about today. Uh, And I know when we were first chatting prior to our interview today, we had to talk about the record behind you, uh, the 45, because that is someone that was very important in the early years of your career. Uh, So we'd love to talk about that record. Willie Thomas, right? Yes.
0: So Willie was—he uh, was actually the the first guy who put a trumpet in my hands back when I was ten years old. He grew up in Orlando, moved away, went to New York, had quite a nice career in New York, um, uh, lost his cabaret license as many did back in the '60s, and uh, moved back to Orlando, um, where he uh, kind of co-started uh, the Bandwagon Music Center, which was in Orlando. Um, And so he and the rest of the faculty from uh, bandwagon came out to my middle school and uh, he put a trumpet in my hands. And that was the beginning of (laughs) of a lot of fun for me. So uh, that that 45 is a a recording that he did when he was in Alabama. Um, It was by a band called the Alabama Cavaliers, which originally it was started back in the 30s by students at the University of Alabama to play at dances. It was a dance band. And then it just kind of evolved over the years. It had like most of the great uh, jazz players from the University of Alabama and around the state of Alabama were in that band. Um, a really great arranger who did a lot of arranging for my big band later on. Steve Sample was a big part of that uh, band. And so it's a, it's an arrangement of uh, the tune Dixie that, uh, that Willie did an arrangement of and then recorded. So, and he gave me, before he passed away, he gave me a couple of mementos to, uh, to keep, uh, to remember him by. And that's, that's what right. I, I really treasure. Very
1: cool. Thank you for sharing that backstory. And you mentioned he was the first one who kind of put the trumpet in your hand. What was it about the trumpet? Cause you think about there's so many instruments one could pick up and play and stick with. What was it about the trumpet that really had an effect on you?
0: Well, one thing about the trumpet, and I think as a teacher, I've learned this over the years, you look at it and it only has three buttons, so you think, "Oh, it's got to be really easy to play." So, I, that didn't really go into why why I played the trumpet. I played, started playing the trumpet because I loved Willie. I, I thought he was the coolest guy in the room. You know, a couple of the other guys were kind of nerdy, kind of you know musician types, and uh, and he was just cool. So uh, I said, "You know, I, I want to try that thing." And uh, and luckily, I just you know I took to it like a like a duck to water. So it uh, it worked out perfectly.
1: Funny you brought up the fact that there's only three buttons, right? Appears like it could be really easy. That's why I chose trumpet when I first took bands. I thought, oh, easy, right? No. Yeah, <laughs> no opposite, opposite of easy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the, with the woodwind instruments like clarinet and saxophone, there's a reed that vibrates, creates a sound. But with the trumpet and the trombone, all the other members of the brass family, you know, you have to create the sound with your lips and that involves a lot of practice and a lot of hard work so
1: sure and in your early formative years right you grew up in orlando right
0: yeah i was born in uh, panama city but we uh, moved to uh my dad was in the military and we moved to orlando when i was two um and i was raised there i i lived there until i was uh until i moved to new york when i was 37 so i spent a lot of years in orlando um I was there before before Disney, you know, it was it was just a quaint little town when I when I was growing up. And boy, did that change in the early 70s. I
1: imagine so. Yeah. What are some of your earliest memories of music? Who do you remember listening to back then? And who do you think had a big influence on you?
0: Well, you know, until I got to high school, probably didn't have I wasn't really searching out music very much. Um, But I had a really great band director, uh, Ed Smith, at uh, Bishop Moore High School, where I went to school. And he, he had a jazz program there. And that's actually Willie Thomas came in and, and did a lot of mentoring at our school. Um, and that's when I really caught the jazz bug. So I would start listening to recordings then. And then we were really fortunate because at that time there was a, a lounge uh, out at Lake Buena Vista, the Village Lounge. And it was, it was basically a waiting room for the really nice restaurant out there. And it was a, they brought in a different jazz artist every two or three weeks. Um, and there was no cover charge. There was really no drink minimum. You could just sit, sit on the couch and listen to these incredible national jazz artists come in and hang out with them on the break. You know, they were, it was kind of like a paid vacation for those guys. So they were just chilling. And uh, so I got to meet a lot of great guys. Uh, Clark Terry, one of my, my great idols on the trumpet. I used to get to see him every year and hang out with him every year and take a lesson with him um, when I was getting a little bit older. So that was really priceless for us um, as young musicians in Orlando because, you know, and we talked a little bit about, especially back in that time, not too many touring bands came down through Florida. It was just, I think it was financially prohibitive. There weren't that many venues to play at you know, we, I always say when they would get to Atlanta and then take a right and go to New Orleans, you know, and not, never get down to Florida. So for us, it was really, really, uh, we were really lucky to have that experience.
1: What do you remember about your first jazz concert you ever saw?
0: You know, that was, that would have probably been one of those gigs out of the out the, uh, the village lounge, you know, and, uh, but I remember in my, my own experience, um, we had uh, one member of the jazz band at Bishop Moore. His father was a doctor and he was a member of an, ex- an exclusive country club. Um, and he hired our big band to play play music at one of their functions one time and that was the first time I really played jazz out in public um and it was it was scary and at the same time it was thrilling just to to improvise for the first time for other people besides parents you know <laughs> which is what we've been playing for before so that was really cool yeah
1: and thinking about that period right i mean were there a lot of places to play out that catered to jazz So you think of like local music scenes you something you think of more like rock music that sort of stuff so was there that jazz scene going on at that time too
0: yeah you know there were a few lounges like at uh, hotels that would it, and it wasn't a nightly thing it would they would have one jazz night a week usually um but yeah I think until I got a little older I didn't really you know I wasn't really able to search out a lot of clubs but you know after I after I got back from college um and started my own band you know there are little hole in the wall places all over all over Central Florida that you could play um you, you know sometimes you had to travel a bit you know um, that's kind of the way the music business, is and was in in florida you know luckily living in orlando i was four hours from miami and i was three two or three hours from jacksonville i was an hour hour and a half from each coast so i worked all over the state because i you know could could get there within three or four hours so um and so you just had to travel and find the find the venues you know
1: were your parents were they bands of jazz or were they into something different that may have also played influence in your early years too?
0: Yeah, not really. Uh, you know, they were into, um, some big band, but you know, they were, you know, we watched Lawrence Welk every Saturday night and, and, um, um, they would go, they would take me to a lot of places they'd, like before I could drive, they took me out to the, the, the village lounge at Lake Buena Vista. Um, and they'd sit there for two or three hours and listen to jazz and, and they were, they were cool with it. But, uh, You know, my mom was a good singer and played a little uh, organ. Um, My dad, not very musically inclined, although he did play uh, pretty good harmonica. Um, But yeah, I didn't. I mean, I was lucky to get some big band exposure through records at home. But uh, it was mostly once I got to high school and I really started experiencing a a lot of different music.
1: Yeah. Was high school the first time you formed like your first actual band? Was that around that that same time?
0: So I didn't form my own band, but I, I got into, a, a, I guess we, we called them garage bands, um, you know, and, and they were bands that just played dance music, rock and roll of the day, you know. And so uh, for me, that was really great experience, too, and a great time, because at that time, you know, Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears and Earth, Wind and Fire and Tower of Power were all like powerful horn bands. So for a, for a trumpet player, I, I got a lot of really great music to, to play. Um, so that was that was didn't really f- form my own jazz band until I got back from college, probably. Yeah.
1: So did you all get a chance to play out in certain clubs at that point? Did you have any experience getting out there with some of these bands that you were playing more garage style?
0: It was almost all high school dances. I mean, back that back in those, those days, they still they hired live bands for dances. Yeah. Uh, but again, it was just great experience to get out and play and 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 play some great music and get some applause and some feedback from the from the audience, you know
1: when you wrapped up high school, your next destination was University of Central Florida is that right
0: yes yeah yep. <laughs> was there I was there for uh, three years um they had a really great big band um when I got there and through through my whole time there. Um, My first couple years of band director, uh, Dr. Gerald Welker was the band director, and he was he was tough. Um, But, man, he he brought in some great music for us to play. And we we play, you know, different conventions like the Florida Music Educators Association Convention uh, every year. And and, um, some really great players in that band. Uh, Dan Jordan, saxophone player who I have played with my entire life um, and who still is in Orlando um herb vaughn who we've talked about he was uh, uh playing a lot of a lot of top 40 especially back in in those days um a couple guys went on to, to work full-time at disney um yeah it was it was quite a band and uh and like i say we got to experiment with it. at that time stan kenton was one of the the uh, you know big bands that everybody was trying to, to to play so man we played some really hard music from the stan kenton band and that that really helped my my playing a lot too
1: was this around the same time you were also working at Disney?
0: Um I started working like as a student musician then. Yeah. Um like every Christmas I would I would work at, at Disney. Back then they would start about Thanksgiving and it would go all the way through uh the new year. And you worked, you know, every weekend until the Christmas season and then every day until till New Year's. So I started out in the Toy Soldier band which is, you know, you wear this giant toy soldier outfit with a head and you play this long five foot long fanfare trumpet and you know it was dues man but uh eventually you started playing in some of the better bands and um but yeah that was that was solid solid work every christmas it was really cool
1: what was it like having to wear something like that in the florida heat like what was that experience like for you
0: Well, it wasn't bad at Christmas time, but I'll tell you later when I started working at Disney as, you know, as a professional, uh, you know, doing a parade at three o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of the summer, wearing a a wool uh, marching band outfit with a hat was brutal.
1: (laughs) I can imagine.
0: They got their money's worth out of us, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) At any point while you were in college at UCF, did you ever have any moments where you were considering maybe even changing from trumpet, maybe picking a different instrument, or were you just like set like, this is, this is my instrument. Like there's nothing else that I want to play. Trumpet is it.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it was always trumpet. I mean, I dabbled on piano a little bit, just mostly to learn some theory and to later on when I started composing, um, but, you know, actually, my undergrad undergrad degree is in accounting. So I was an accountant, accounting major while I was at UCF. I graduated in three years because uh, back then you used to be able to test out of uh, classes when you were in high school. So I got out of a lot of classes. So I got my degree in three years. And uh, so kind of had a year to waste. And we didn't talk about gap years back then. But uh, uh, some friends of mine were going to North Texas State University in Denton, and um, to, to get in the music program. And I thought, you know,
2: man,
0: I'll, I'll tag along, I'll go, you know? And, and so, uh, went there, spent three years, uh, three semesters at North Texas. And that's, that's where I really decided, you know, I I was an accountant for a year when I moved out there and after a year I decided, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out for me. So, (laughs) and I was having so much fun playing after, after work with all the great musicians there. Um, I finally said, you know, I'm going to give this thing a shot. And, uh, yeah. that's, that's how I really pulled the trigger and said, okay, I'm going to try and make a living playing the trumpet.
1: Describe the scene when you were in college around the Orlando area, the different venues, the different places that were around, maybe not just so much just for jazz, but just in general, what do you remember from that period? And were there any places that really stand out that maybe you played, maybe you saw a, a show at what kind of stands out in your, in your memory?
0: Yeah, again, you know, I, I think, you know, most of my college days, I was either, you know, studying and or, or, you know, practicing for 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 concerts and stuff like that. So I still didn't go out to a lot of venues then, you know, and, and it wasn't until after I graduated and got back from North Texas that I started going out more concerts, uh, you know, uh, kind of fell into the, the, the top 40 thing there for a little while. So, you know, there was a, what was it, the why not lounge out in uh, Altamont Springs was a big, big venue. Uh, the cheek to cheek uh, at the Villanova restaurant in winter park, which is where I, I played for a couple of years. Um, you know, there was a couple of old music halls in downtown Orlando um, that were really cool that would bring in some national acts. And there was a club called Valentine's down on orange Avenue in, in Orlando and they brought in a lot of acts. And also, that was a chance for a lot of local bands to play at. So that's where I started kind of getting to, to play a little bit there, too.
1: One of the pictures you sent me uh, was of one of your early bands, uh, Kiwi Guru, yeah, and uh, a show at Decades there. So that was in Winter Park, right?
0: Yeah, that was right on Park Avenue. Um hole in the wall i mean almost dirt floors kind of thing and there was a little little room in the back that they that they would have a axe play and uh again not really a jazz room if they had all kinds of alternative and and rock stuff um but we had a steady steady gig there for a year or two Um, um that was my first real band of my own that i formed um very eclectic uh it was guitar and vibes uh, the vibes player and the bass player were, were in the Florida Symphony Orchestra one of the I, one was my roommate uh, the bass player um and we played some of my original I'm starting to write some original tunes by then uh, but also a lot of very eclectic jazz pieces that no, no one else was playing I, I really I mean I, I love to play all the songs from the great American Songbook and I love to play Miles Davis and all these great. Uh, artists, but uh, there are so many guys that were under the radar, and I, I liked a lot of their tunes, and so started just trying to pick and choose and and find the sound that I wanted to to be working with. You know,
1: what was your favorite Miles period?
0: Um, man, that's hard. Um, I would say probably the early '60s. So like when he formed the band with uh, with Ron Carter, Tony Williams, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter. Um, when they were still playing, uh, jazz standards, but they were really tearing them apart and really playing them in different ways. You know, I mean, I love the fifties miles where you, with Coltrane and that they were playing all the great American songbook tunes. Um, but when he, he transitioned and kind of morphed the the style a little bit, uh, with that second quart uh, quintet, that, that, that was one of the, that was a really exciting time in jazz history, I think.
1: Did you have a favorite Miles song to play out live?
0: Boy, again, there's so many of them. It's not a it's not a Miles tune, but uh it's a tune that he played a bunch. It's a Wayne Shorter tune called Footprints. I I've been playing that tune forever. You know, the earliest early days for one of his first tunes. I still love playing that tune and um yeah, he again, because his his career lasted so long, he had so many different periods and so many great songs and all those periods, it's it's really hard to, to just settle on one, you know?
1: Sure, of course. Yeah. I wasn't sure if there was one that stood out that, you know, you just seem to gravitate more to live. Uh, but that makes sense. And, uh, you know, you're mentioning a lot of these different places in the Orlando area. At what point in your career did you start to venture outside of central Florida and start to experiment with some other places throughout the state?
0: Well, uh, again, there were some places over on the on the, the East Coast uh, in Melbourne. Uh, was it the Lazy Bean was a, a, a venue over there that was really open to whatever you wanted to play. So we could we could go a little bit more avant garde over there. Played a lot over in the Tampa, Sarasota area um not just in you know jazz venues but a lot of uh, latin bands salsa bands and i got up you know and then when i was starting to do some more blues work um a venue uh, up in uh, jacksonville apple jacks was a really great place to to go up and play um tobacco road down in miami was really a great blues venue um so yeah just i think it kind of also depended on what music i was cuz you know as a as a especially as a trumpet player, you got to freelance and you got to cover every genre to make, to make it, uh, as a, as a professional, you know, so, sure. so I think I, as I played the different genres and different bands and that kind of led me to a lot of different venues, you know, and then sometimes you get your foot in the door there and then you could bring in your own band to, to play your own stuff then.
1: Did you notice any differences in the crowds depending on where in Florida you were playing?
0: Um, a little bit. I mean again, you know, I think uh the, the Tampa Bay area is there's so much great Latin music there. The crowds are really enthusiastic. Um and a lot of dancing at those at those venues. So that was really cool. Um I think you know, Miami's they're 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 so metropolitan, man. You you get a whole bunch of different people to, to come out and see you there, you know. Um so I think it, you know it kind of depends on the cultural scene in, in each area too, you know. I mean play over on the beach and on the on the east coast man you're going to get a bunch of hippies and and beach bums you know and they're they're loving the music just like everybody else so it was really cool to see you know a really cross section of the of the state in the in the audiences you know
1: i think you also told me before that you had also played all the way down in the keys too so was there any difference between you know playing because you'd think that especially down there maybe more tourists and stuff like that? Did you notice that was kind of a different uh, different feel when you played down in the
0: Keys? A little bit, but you know I think again we're we're talking like you know mid eighties. I don't know if it has it had really caught on as a tourist destination. I mean Key West, you know there there were definitely some some tourist things there, but again all those lifers that live in Key West, I mean they were you know. Hardcore, just like a mellow hang, because that's what the keys was all about, you know. So, yeah, so a night at Sloppy Joe's down in uh, Key West could could be really different every night, you know, depending on what cross section of the of the the groove <laughs> of the people showed up that night, you know.
1: <laughs> How did you approach the set list, right? Because you you would think that based on where you're playing, you might try to cater more to that local audience was that ever something that was in your mind as you were creating the set list of what you wanted to play based on where you were playing
0: yeah sure i mean again you know over over on the uh, the the west coast you know i might try to work some more bossa novas or sambas in just to uh, uh, appeal to the latin crowd a little bit more um again over on the east coast uh maybe a little bit more avant-garde you know we could we let our hair down a little bit more there when I was down in the Keys, that was all with the blues blues band. So it was, you know, our set list didn't change too much. It was just, you know, Southern blues and let loose.
1: <laughs> and speaking of the blues, you had quite some time over with uh, Bob Greenley in King Snake Studios. Uh, how did you get acquainted with him and just talk about some of the time you spent working with his label in the studio?
0: yeah you know i i think i i went and i went and sat in um the cornet player nat adderley um was was on the scene then and, and i you know i loved nat's playing so i heard he was playing um and he was just kind of an adjunct to this blues band and um so i went and sat in and uh and i met bob then and uh And so I just, you know, we kind of exchanged information and uh, he said, you know, I got this studio in Sanford and, you know, I don't know if you'd be interested in coming out and recording. And at that point, I was wasn't doing a lot. I was still just kind of getting getting my my feet firmly on the ground. And um, so sure. Yeah. You know, let me know. And so, yeah, I started going out there and, uh, you know, we were I was out there many times every month for the next many years um because recording a blues album out there was very slow process there were there were no there was no charts there were there was not even a tune when we would start you know we'd start with a riff and then add this and add this and then. so it was a lot of all-nighters and and um just kind of building by by block at a time kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time out there and, you know, got to play with some really great blues musicians. And, I, you know, I learned a lot about recording and how to record and, and the techniques and everything. So um, it was, again, very educational and, and on top of being a blast.
1: <laughs> Who were some of the other local musicians you remember from that period that you had a chance to play a lot with just in the studio with King Snake?
0: Well, you know, I mean, one of the big ones was noble thin man Watts. He was uh kind of a legend. He was from uh D Land, Florida. Um, and he had been, you know, uh on the on the blue circuit for I mean, at that time, I, I don't know how old he was. He, he I thought he was 70 or 80. I mean, he was just he, he he was a an old veteran of the of the trade, you know. And so yeah, it was a black you know, blast hanging out with him and I learned a lot about the blues and you know, how not to play so many notes. He used to yell at me because I would, you know, I was a young jazz musician, so I wanted to play everything that I knew. And he'd yell at me, you know, no, you can't do that, man. Um, So he was great. Uh, Ernie Lancaster, a guitar player, uh, extraordinary. I I got to play a lot with him. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, And then just a bunch of the, you know, kind of uh, national blues artists that weren't Floridians, uh, Lucky Peterson and uh, uh, Kenny Neal and, um yeah, so I got to got to play with a, a lot of different blues cats, you know, because I mean, you know, like every other genre, there's a there's like a Florida blues, there's a kind of a southern blues, there's a Memphis blues. And so all the different guys we recorded for all, all brought like a different, different uh, thing to the to the game, you know, and uh, Taj Mahal, we did a thing with Taj Mahal. That was really cool. Um, so, yeah, I just got exposed to, again, a whole new range of music that i didn't know about before you know
1: so really prior to that you weren't really that into the blues is that right or maybe something you really want that focused in on it was more so just you know jazz was your thing right
0: yeah you know i mean you know jazz i mean we play blues in 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 jazz too but it's um i don't know it's much more ethereal i guess than than just the the down-home blues that, that is a true rhythm and blues band you know yeah so yeah so I lot I learned a lot in those days.
1: When you were playing with a lot of these different musicians uh on the blues side of things did you have any memorable gigs where maybe you played out with some of these other blues musicians?
0: Oh yeah I mean we you know we used to have great great gigs uh you know there was a place called Skippers over in uh on the west coast that we used to play with a lot of different um, um artists and those are always great crowds It was kind of an outdoor venue the st- stage was outdoors and the crowd was all just gathered around <clears throat> that was really really cool um you know we got to play on the same bill as james brown over in daytona beach for spring break um i mean that was that was great um yeah i mean and then you know I, the, the the band started traveling a lot so we we played up and down the east coast a couple of times you know I mean, you mentioned Key West, so we we played from as far south to Key West and as far north as New York City. We played uh, CBGBs up in uh, in New York. Wow,
1: what but was that like? I mean, considering that CBGBs is more associated with you know punk rock and rock music, so what was that like for you playing a venue as famous as CBGBs?
0: Oh, it was great, you know, and and you know it was it's a tiny place; not that big a place, you know, and, the, and of course the New York New York crowd was just crazy they were wild man it was it was really great um another one i really liked was um well in what that was very memorable um we also pl- uh, played quite a bit with uh with root boy slim who had uh had gone to yale with uh, bob greenley and so they they had had a band back at yale and which is they were called the midnight creepers um or the yeah i think midnight creepers so he, he renamed his Florida band. Um, after those days and so after you know root boy had quite a cult following back in the day and so he was a little past his his famous time when he was when he was playing with the creepers but uh, but we played a, a, a gig at the marble bar in, bar in baltimore one day um, One this was mid again mid-80s it was like an all concrete venue like it was in the basement of some hotel and it was just gray concrete. There was nothing except concrete <laughs> and, and columns, you know. Wow. And so that was kind of a little bit of like, wow, okay. I, I guess this is cool, but <laughs> it was a little weird. <laughs>
1: that sounds very Baltimore <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from what I've heard. So uh, you mentioned the Midnight Creepers. So here's a copy of Listen, think that this is the first Midnight Creepers record and you are right there yep,
0: right next to bob yeah
1: yeah so this was uh taken you said mentioned this picture was taken in key west mm-hmm. yep so uh, we were talking about this now although you weren't credited on this record you said you couldn't or couldn't remember if you played on it right
0: i don't think i did i think they recorded that like before i you know was a member of the band even you know um, but I guess they, in the time lapse between the recording and the, the, the album cover, they, that was the shot that they had. So <laughs> yeah,
1: this came out in 1987 That's when this was released.
0: Yeah. yeah. But I, th- I don't think I played on that, but, uh,
1: yeah. And I have to go back and listen to it again, because I tried to see if I could hear the trumpet and at least, and I've had the record for a long time and, uh, I have to go back and really listen to it again to see if I can isolate just the the trumpet.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> well, well, please tell me if I'm on it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely on the cover, though. So you know, I imagine maybe you are on it. I don't maybe know. Maybe
0: so yeah, maybe so. You know, oh, yeah. and we we recorded so much back in those days. I, you know, it's hard to hard to really recollect all the different artists and all the different albums that we, that we we did, you know?
1: Sure. And, and thinking about that, you know, for you, what did you prefer most? Did you prefer playing more in the studio or was there something about the live performance that was more your style of playing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I always love playing live. Um, You just get, you, first of all, I mean, the, the, the music is more spontaneous. I I think that's really important with music. Um, I mean, it's, it's important to document the music too, but, but um, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I dig the, the, the spontaneity and the, the interaction between uh, the band and the band and between the band and the audience, you know, it, it creates a lot of different energy that you can feed off of. And so I've, I've always loved, love playing live.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and, you know, you did quite a bit in the studio. No, there's there's definitely uh, stuff out there. And one in particular that may, maybe some people aren't aren't aware of is this Secret Weapons record where you are credited as playing trumpet on this record. Uh, what do you remember from this album? Do you remember, uh, you know, getting in the studio? And what was that like? What you can remember from contributing to this album?
0: Yeah, that was another one where it was just, uh, you know, piece by piece, we, we, we built some of those, those tunes and, and um, yeah, you know, we just, we were making up horn parts kind of as we went along. And um, um, again, that's one I had, I had totally forgotten about that album until you, until you brought it, brought it back to my attention. And I actually even called uh, or texted Dan Walters to ask him about it he, he not, he's not even really sure if he has i think he, all he, all he has is reel to reel tapes of Wow.
1: and it's a cool record cuz i would say it's different cuz it's not it's not really blues it's not really jazz i mean it's not really either of those two it's more i guess rock oriented it has like an 80s sound but not i don't know it's hard to explain cuz there's like different styles of music on that especially when you when you factor in some of the like the trumpet right i mean not something I was expecting to hear. So uh, did you, did you ever, did you ever play live with them or that was just studio only? And that was about yeah. it.
0: Yeah. That was just a, a, a quick, a quick thing. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it was kind of alternative, you know I mean? There were yeah. uh, the, the rhythmic thing was kind of alternative. Just the whole approach was kind of, kind of just trying to be different, you know? Um, and Dan Walters is another one, man. He's really active on the, on the, the central Florida scene. Now he, he, he's still working constantly. He's, he's a great, great guy.
1: And you also had a chance to travel outside the U S right? Europe, Japan. Uh What were some of those experiences like and any fond memories you have about touring outside of the U.S.
0: I love being outside of the U S <laughs> um, you know, I, my wife and I still travel every year and we, we try to go to Europe or, or someplace uh, every year. Um, the first time I got to, to Europe was with the, the Kingsnake uh, record label. They did a, they had a, they called it the Kingsnake caravan and it was uh, several of their stars. It was uh lucky Peterson and Kenny Neal, um, Noble Watts, Yvonne Jackson um, uh, was singing, Um, and so we started by a little Canadian tour. We went to Montreal and Toronto, um, Victoria and Vancouver. And then we flew over, we flew into uh, Glasgow and we played the Glasgow jazz and blues festival. That was really a blast. Um, moseyed around a whole bunch, uh, went down to a studio in Baden-Baden, Germany and recorded a TV show, um, which was really cool the um, the day that we recorded, uh, the band that recorded right before us was shaka khan so we got to we didn't meet shaka but we got to hang out with her her band a little bit um and uh ended up in uh stockholm so we got to see a lot of you know the tour was three weeks long and we we got to see a lot of uh a lot of cool venues um, um and just to experience some different cultures you know um and then uh, and when i moved to new york Um, actually before i moved to new york i started doing uh broadway shows in in europe um and so same thing which was really cool because we would sit in each city for two or three months at a time so you could really get to know like i I know munich so well because i've been there three or four times for two or three months at a time so uh, to get to know a city like that was was really cool um and of course i met all kinds of musicians that i would later work on uh, working in, in, New York with, but so most of the first half of the nineties, I was doing shows on and off in Europe and then took, I had a couple of years off and then went back and did one in uh, 96, 97. And, uh, met my wife on one of those shows. So, uh, that was really cool. And, um,
1: what, uh, what location did you meet her?
0: Uh, Munich. Yeah. We were doing the show, uh, 42nd street and, uh, I was playing the lead trumpet and she was one of the lead actresses. So. Um, it was kind of like a Broadway show written <laughs>
1: uh, what were some of those crowds like playing over in Europe?
0: They're amazing um like at the end of the show I had the I have this ongoing joke you know in the United States uh, you know after after you play the the bows when the the actors take their final bow and the curtain comes down, Then, um, you know, the band plays exit music. We play music from the show for, I don't know, three or four minutes. And we call in in the United States. Yeah, we get a leaving ovation for that because people are like out the door. You know, in Europe, they would gather around the pit and look down into the pit and watch us play the exit music you know and we had i had one time in in munich uh, a lady invited us to to lunch on monday on our day off you know and served us all this great german food and it's i know it's a kind of a, a blanket statement but they really seem to appreciate the arts and musicians so much in europe so that was just that was so cool and we were lucky we we had monday nights off so we would find a jazz venue and uh, one of the guys had brought a little jazz band book and we go play. And again, man, the appreciation for jazz, this was back in the you know early nineties, they couldn't get enough. You know, they were just, they were so excited to have Americans in, in, in town playing jazz. So yeah, it was, it was so cool.
1: Was there a place maybe when you were over there that you just didn't get the play that you wish you could
0: have? Um, well, we didn't get to play in Paris because uh, the Paris uh, musicians union um, would only allow Parisians to play, only pl- let French play. And the same thing in Vienna. So, but I mean, you know, I visited both those places a ton. And um, I actually, you know, later on, I, I would sit in at jazz clubs in in uh, Paris. So I got to do some playing there.
1: And you also played Japan too, right?
0: Yeah. When I, so after I moved to New York, um, I was doing the show uh, Chicago a lot. I, I, I was, I just subbed that show a lot. And so they uh, they were doing a tour to Tokyo, um, uh, three week three week uh, stand in Tokyo, and so I uh, got hired to to play that, and um, so yeah, we were in Tokyo for for three weeks, and uh, again, just so cool to eat all the different food and and you know experience the the busyness of Tokyo, which you know makes New York seem like Omaha, Nebraska. And I got to sit in, got to play with some guys there, and uh, again, they they're jazz freaks, man. They they love jazz so much there. So, um, and again, nobody moved after the show. Everybody sat in their seat and listened to listened to the band play play the exit music. So again, great great appreciation for the arts there.
1: Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories from other people when they play over in Japan, just different feel audience wise compared to maybe playing in the US uh, especially when it comes to just the respect of the the music that's
0: funny one thing i remember is you know you look out in the audience and most of the most of the audience had was wearing masks and this was back in the 90s you know i mean they'd been aware of airborne transmittable diseases for a lot longer than we were you know and so when covid hit here and I was like, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I've seen this before. This isn't a thing, you
2: know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? And I think, as a real contrast to Japan and to Europe, I think I also read you played in the Caribbean, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was cruise ships. You know, I mean, back in the day, that was yeah, that was a gig. You know, and, and
1: <laughs> what was that like, playing on a cruise ship?
0: You know, for me, it was okay because I I I never like signed up for a like a long term contract um i was at that time i was doing pretty well in orlando and so the 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 guy who booked the cruises down from waterdale and and miami he would call me if he had a guy that needed to get out for a a week or two or three um and so i would just i would go down and and you know just sub for him uh, which was cool because you know when you when you do a cruise ship gig you know your your accommodations are like down in the bowels of the ship, you know, and it's a, it's like a little four by eight room. Oh and, man, <laughs> and it's dark, and it's yeah, it's 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 not very pleasant. But when I would go on as a sub, I'd tell him, man, I you know, I need a room. I need a, I need a a, a regular room, you know. And and they were he was cool because he knew I could just go in and nail the gig and 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 get in and out, and and it was it was cool. So, but yeah, I mean, I got to see all the islands down in there, and again, usually I would have passenger and crew status so i could like do the day trips uh uh wherever we were i got to ride on a america's cup uh yacht uh one time and uh um yeah so it was i mean it was a great you know a great chance to get to see the caribbean and and make a little money you know those gigs don't pay very much money but you know you you also don't have very many expenses either so so.
1: i was going to ask that question what was the pay like playing a cruise versus maybe playing uh, a club or even playing a show in Japan or in Europe. What were some of the differences there between some of those paid gigs?
0: Yeah. I mean, cruise ships have always been kind of the, you know, low pay. I think back then they were make, they were paying three, 300 bucks a week, I think. Um, but again, you know, if you were, especially if you were a young musician, you know, it was a good chance to make some money and save a little bit of money. Cause you wouldn't, you know, you could sublet your apartment or whatever and, and, uh, and, and, keep most of the money that you made you know clubs notoriously don't pay very well especially for jazz gigs a lot of them are are you you get paid the cover charge sometimes they'll even take part of the cover charge away from you um so yeah you're not going to make very much money there you know for me the the uh, broadway shows one of the best paying things um that and uh club dates we in 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 the northeast we call them club dates uh weddings bar mitzvahs Um, And, you know, you make pretty good money for those, but uh, there's a lot of, you know, unless you're playing a, you know, like a big artist um, and which is usually going to be concert stage kind of things, you know, I mean, I I did a lot of work with Natalie Cole over the years and she always paid well, of course, Um, but uh, yeah, just working in clubs. It's, uh, it's, you're doing it, you know, more for your, the love of the music and to perform than to make very much money.
1: Were there any other memories or f- things that are fond to you that maybe you played outside of those locations in the U S like, did you ever go out West and play uh, before you moved out that way? Of course. Like, did you have any, any tours playing other places in the United States?
0: Yeah. I mean, not too much. Like I say, mostly the the East, East coast uh, uh, thing. Um, you know, I visited a friend in Chicago uh, a couple of times and and we would always play gigs there, but nothing really very organized the only time I got out west before I moved here was um, back in the day um, when Tupperware was was kind of a still a, a big thing. There uh, they had a you know a headquarters in Kissimmee, Florida, and so every year they would have these big conventions where uh, people who sold ladies who t- sold Tupperware would come in for three or four days at a time, and you know talk about the products and giveaways and all that stuff. And there was a pit band. There was always a pit band there. Uh, for play-ons and playoffs and background music and everything, and so uh, a couple times they came out to uh, California to do a convention out there. So they would—I uh, guess it was cheaper for them just to hire the Orlando Cats and fly them out there than to try to get LA Cats because the scale would have been so much higher. Um so yeah, that was the first time I I'd, I'd gotten out west was uh, t- thanks to Tupperware. <laughs>
2: <laughs> how does
1: that so how does that conversation go when someone approaches you and says, Yeah, we want you to be the part of the pit band for Tupperware? Like how- <laughs> Well,
0: see again, man, for 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 us back in those days, that was a that was a good paying gig because it was all day long and it was, you know, they would have like many of these three-day you know sessions. And so I forget, it might've been two weeks worth of work, maybe even more, but it was all day, every day. And so, you know, you racked up some, some good money doing it. I mean, it was obviously, some of it was kind of just mindless um, playing, but yeah. So, I mean, that, that was a gig that everybody wanted. And, and when I found, fi- you know, it took a long time before I got finally got called for it. And when I did, I was yeah. like, and again, just the best players in town, you know, and, and, um, um so yeah it was it was cool and you know and there was some fun stuff too they some of these things when you know what they would make presentations to the to the Tupperware ladies and there would be like you know 400 ladies would come across the stage to accept their their little thing and you would just play one tune for like half hour or something you know and you'd play the melody then a bunch of people would solo and then you'd play the melody and then a bunch more people would solo so you know you've got a chance to 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 do some soloing and to do some playing in between the, the, you know, the monotonous part. But uh, yeah, that was a, that was a, a treasured gig back in those days. Yeah.
1: Interesting. I never knew there was such a thing as a Tupperware pit. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know,
2: it's weird.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's definitely interesting. Uh, you know, with all the time you had traveled, right. Both domestically and internationally, was there anyone along that you just traveled a lot with where, just funny story, you know, that maybe there were any kind of pranks that were played. Like, did you all get into that sort of stuff? Like, was there anything like that that, that had taken place uh, when you were traveling with all these different characters and personalities over the years?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, for me, there were there were a lot of day trips, like uh, when we would have our our day off on Mondays when we we're playing doing a Broadway show. Uh, it, I, I would always just catch the S-Bond, the, 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 the train that goes out into the the uh, rural or suburb 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 area um around all these different uh, cities um so i i mean i used to love to do that and i you know there would be a a, a group of three or four of us like you know especially like in germany that were beer lovers and so we would try to go to all these old uh, famous breweries you know like uh, uh one of my favorites is Onex. it's a monastery outside of um uh, Munich that until a few years ago they they didn't even export their beer into other parts of Germany it was only in Munich that you could get this beer um, so I used to always go out there uh, Steffen which is the oldest brewery in the world 1040 is when it was uh, first they first started brewing there so yeah and it was it was always kind of you always found that the guys who who liked to to, to do those kind of outreach things you know and uh one of my favorite was when I did Chicago in uh, in Japan. Um, my partner in crime on that one was a trombone player named Dave Paniki, which um if you know of the the famous Buddy Rich bus tapes, he is he's the one who is kind of the instigator and uh, and and <laughs> major opponent on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we 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 had just had a blast in in Tokyo for three weeks.
1: The whole beer thing. Are you still uh, a fan of trying different beers across across the world?
0: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I've been home brewing since two thousand one. So I've I'm, oh wow. When I was in New York, I did the, a lot of competitive brewing. I entered a lot of competitions, and one one of my beers won the uh, the Knickerbocker State uh, Brewing uh, Competition, and they actually brewed. I brewed a uh, jalapeno pale ale, which at that time nobody was using peppers in beer. Now, now you see pepper beers a lot, but so yeah, that one best in show, and they they brewed uh, uh brewed a batch of my beer up in Albany at a at a, a brewery. So that was wow, pretty, pretty cool. But that yeah, is cool. I, I am a beer lover, and um, you know I I love tasting all kinds of beers, and um, you know it, especially out here in Seattle, it's kind of uh, IPA central. So if you're an India Pale Ale lover, uh, this is a, a good place to be.
1: <laughs> Have you ever? came out came out with a Florida inspired beer.
0: um no because again, I, I didn't start brewing till I was in New York. So I not a Florida style beer. I did do a a, a, a jazz series of beers um that I that I brewed with the famous jazz musicians in in, in mine. So I brewed a uh, a Clifford Brown ale. I brewed a uh, for miles I brewed a Prince of Darkness stout um nice <laughs> uh so back back in the day um the musicians who had drinking problems who, who were alcoholics they called them hop heads so and it didn't really have anything to do with hops that you brew beer with it was just the, the terminology so bix beiderbeck was a really famous guy that they called so i called i made one called old hop head with his his picture on it so and uh, uh and the cole porter that was another of uh, the musicians uh series so so nothing from florida but there's a little musician related
1: beer okay beer. all right well there's still time you know you never know you might do, oh, yeah. you oh, might yeah. want and just you know pay pay homage to your your old home state with a yeah. florida inspired beer there you go I'll,
0: I'll, i will take that into consideration
1: all right <laughs> so i want to just kind of talk a little bit about your transition to, to teaching? Because, uh, there's been a, a lot of people who have, uh, I've had on the podcast before who later on in their life became educators. So how did you make that transition from being a, uh, musician playing out to all these different places and recording in studios to wanting to get into teaching?
0: Well, I mean, you know, and I taught a little bit when I was in Florida and a tiny little bit in, in New York, but, um, when I moved out here, the scene in, in Seattle is uh not great to make a living. I mean, there's a lot of places to play if you want to play for free or play for the door. Um, but uh just there I, I could see I wasn't gonna be able to make the the living that I could that I was making before. Um and so uh I mean one one thought I had before I moved out here, because I I pretty much knew that it was gonna be that way. Um, so I actually had considered uh trying to start brewing, um, professionally when I was, came out here, even maybe have my own brew pub, but then I discovered it would be a quarter of a million dollars startup fee. And I probably couldn't do that. So, uh, I, I just, uh, I met a, uh, a trumpet player on a gig and he said, no, I'm, I'm leaving this music school. Do you want to start, you know, teaching my students? I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a, give it a shot. And so it was cool for, that happened for a couple of years. And then, uh, the, the music school that I was teaching at, uh, wanted to start a jazz program. So I got to be, I got to start the jazz program and figure out the curriculum and and do it my way. And um, so that was really cool. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, and I, I, I've i been teaching ever since then out here. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of great students I've had. It's been very ful- fulfilling, you know, and you're still, you still get to play a lot. I mean, you're playing during lessons. So it's, um, I kind of kind of like that you're you're still hands on with the trumpet anyway.
1: Is there any kind of mental shift that you have to take going from what you were doing to teaching?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I think and I think teaching is a if you're good at it, it, it has to be individual. I mean, you you have to have your own approach. I you know I I'm sure there are teachers who you know teach in a in a standard way that you know has been done repetitively for how many decades. But for me, I you know I teach. My own way, I teach a lot because of my experience, and uh, and I think I also realize just from my own experience that like catering to each individual student is really important. So I'm, I mean, my lesson plan there. I don't have a single lesson plan. I have, you know, if I have 18 students, I've got 18 different lesson plans because each each kid needs something different, uh, you know, or wants something different. So. I think for me, just flexibility in 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 teaching has been really important.
1: Have any of your students stumbled upon any of your prior work? But uh, when you were still in Florida,
0: a little bit, yeah. Um, and and you know, some of my my New York stuff too, especially. But yeah, and in, you know, I would play them cuts from uh, from different tunes that I had recorded and stuff like that. And not too many people go into the music business, and especially now, I'm you know, I don't try to. I would never try to push anybody into a career in music and even less so now just because the music business is getting tougher and tougher and tougher, you know, but, um, but I I had a couple students that have gone on to become professional musicians. Um, I have one. um, She's really, really doing great. Um, She went to uh, Berkeley School of Music in Boston. Um, She got to sit in and play with Chick Corea while she was there. She moved to New York and started doing wedding. Got into a good wedding band, so she started making money right away. And she's become a really great uh, innovator on the synthesizer. She has some things going on that are kind of really new. So she was on John Legend's last uh, CD. Um, she did a, a week with the late uh, the late night band uh, with uh, Jimmy Fallon. I guess that is the Roots. Uh, yeah, yeah, sitting in with the, with, with that band. Um, and, uh, she's been out with this, uh, female vocalist, uh, Claro, which I'm, I had never heard of before, but they, they tour a lot. So she's, she's making it, you know, which is, makes me really proud. Because, um, not too many people can do it anymore,
1: you know? Yeah. that's gotta be, you know, obviously one of the most rewarding aspects of being a teacher is, uh, having those students or any student for that matter, but especially the ones that wind up really uh making it in that way and uh and you think back to you know their very green periods of their just getting started and you having a, a huge hand in in that yeah, beginning yeah. so
0: yeah, you, know, and I, you know the majority of the students you never hear from after they graduate you know because they go on to other other things you know so yeah so it's good to have one every once in a while that you can kind of follow and 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 see what they're doing you know
1: I think you also you sent me uh, uh, two tracks from a, a demo album that you. Um, I mean, I, I guess there was, there was enough songs for an album, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they were pretty short. I mean, we didn't uh, we didn't really stretch on the solos. I, I, I tried to keep the the lengths of the the tunes short for because again, I was going to use it to to try and get club club work, and you know, so you needed to have some project to to put in their hand. So there were there were seven tunes, but they were pretty short, you know.
1: I liked the two that you sent, and I think you mentioned that there were one or two guys on that on that demo that were from Florida?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the saxophone player, saxophone and flute player, um, Dan Jordan, he's still in Orlando, still working all the time. And uh, the drummer uh, at that time, had, he had moved to New York even before I did. And so he was living in New York, but he was originally from uh, the, the West coast of Florida. And now he's returned home. He's gone back to the West coast and he's, he's working a lot over uh, in the Tampa St. Pete. What was uh, his name? John Jenkins.
1: Um,
0: and he, you know, he, yeah, he's, so he stays busy over in, in that, uh, in that area of Florida. Um, so yeah, so those guys were Florida, Florida guys. And then the bass player and the, the um, piano player were New York, just New York guys.
1: If you are watching the podcast, make sure you check out the audio-only version, too, because on that one, you will hear an intro and an outro of two songs off of the demo, which was never actually released, right, Bruce?
0: No, no, I just use it to get, try to get work.
1: <laughs> it's, always, it's always crazy to me as an outsider looking in, having heard so many demos over the years, And so many of them never saw the light of day. And then you hear them, you're like to that person who's listening, who didn't create it, you're like, how can this not have been released, at least where people could hear it? So maybe someday uh, you'll have that out somewhere where people can at least stream it and and check out what you uh, what you put together, because I like what I heard.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, the only thing we I mean, my my wife and I recorded a, a big band CD before we left New York. Um, and that one, that one was released and and you can, you can check it out on Spotify and all the, all the platforms now, but uh, yeah, that was, that was the only one that we, we released for mass, uh, mass consumption.
1: As we kind of round things out, I want to ask you just some quick final questions here, you know, thinking about all the different places you had a chance to play in Florida, was there one that really just stood out as it was your favorite one, you know, that you ever had a chance to play while you were in Florida.
0: Um, well, there was, there was a club in winter park called Dexter's. Um, I think it's still there. It's a, it was a wine bar. Um, and they used to have jazz things there quite a bit. And a, a bunch of us played in different, different bands uh, there over the years. And um, so I always loved playing that venue. And there was one uh, specific one that, um, Another great trumpet player who lived uh, in Orlando named Jerry Tyree. He was um, he was on Maynard Ferguson's Dreamland Band back in the late 1950s. He was he played in New York uh, a, a long time too. Um, great bebop trumpet player, and um, so he had a two trumpet uh, book. He had uh, a band that had two trumpets, and so when the previous guy had been playing the gig left town, I, he, he called me to do the gig. And so playing two trumpets with another really great trumpet player was was really cool. And then one night, uh, uh, Willie Thomas was back in town, and he had a young uh, phenom trumpet player named Ryan Kaiser, who's now in New York. He plays in uh, Wynton Marcellus' Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, and he's I mean he's just a top shelf guy. So they came in and we did a we did a four trumpet battle on a few tunes, and it was it was pretty awesome. <laughs>
1: wow, how long does something like that go on for?
0: Oh, I mean, you know, each tune would be, you know, 10-15 minutes probably, I guess. Um, yeah, it was it was quite a quite a gig. I was I'll, I'll never forget that one.
1: What's your recovery process after doing something like that?
0: You know, and it's not, you know, it's not that bad because I mean, you, you play your solo and then while the other guys play your solo, you're you're resting, so it's yeah, it's not it was just so great because you got to listen, I mean, I got to listen to this great bebop trumpet player. Then I got to listen to Willie Thomas, who was another great bebop trumpet player, who was my my mentor. And then I got to hear this young phenom who was just playing his butt off, you know. And so it was just like, it was thrilling to like, just be on stage with all this great trumpet stuff, you know, and I'm just yeah. trying to, in there, you know.
1: <laughs> was there a place in Florida that perhaps you never got a chance to play that for whatever reason. And you wish in hindsight, you did get a chance to play there.
0: Um, You know, I don't, I don't think so because uh, you know, I got to play all the big concert halls um, when touring acts would come through, they would, they would play around the state, you know? So, I mean, all the big venues of Van Weasel hall and Ruth Eckert hall and, the King Center over in Melbourne, uh, Bob Carr Auditorium in Orlando, <clears throat> so I got to play all those big venues and and there were you know I think there there weren't any jazz venues. All most of the jazz venues were just little clubs and so and I played most of those too. So yeah, I think I mean I hit I I ticked off most of the boxes when I was there. If there
1: was one record, one jazz record that you would want one of your students to listen to what record would come to mind right away as the one you would recommend to them?
0: That's another tough one. Um, I would say uh, John Coltrane's uh, Blue Train because it uh, it was uh, Sextet. It had uh, Coltrane, uh, Lee Morgan on trumpet and Curtis Fuller on trombone. Um, they did a couple of the famous John Coltrane tunes with with his special changes on it. Everybody plays great on that record. Um, it's exciting. It's energetic. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of, you know, I always think if I need, if I had to take 10 albums on a desert island, that would definitely have to be one of them.
1: That was the earliest jazz record I remember listening to. And there was something about the Blue Note covers themselves yeah. that just had something about them that sparked this mystery that like, like, like this mystique or this interest, like, what does this sound like? And uh, that happened with me with blue train.
0: Yeah, no, it's, that's, it's a special album. And yeah, I, I love those blue note albums. I, you know, that's what I still miss most, you know, about digital music and even CDs was, you know, I, I like holding that album. I love the I like the smell of the cardboard. Uh, I like to be able to read the, the, the story. Um. yeah, I, I, that, that was always a, and like you say, the, the album covers, you know, for those Blue Note albums were just, they were so cool. Yeah,
1: this might be a tough question, but thinking about just those labels, right, those jazz labels, like, like Blue Note, Prestige, Riverside, Dial, I mean, there's so many, right, the list can go on, right? Uh, did you have one in particular where you were more of a fan of that you followed more of the jazz musicians on that particular label?
0: Well, I mean, again, I think Blue Note was at the top just because there was so many great recordings done. And and like you say, the, the albums themselves were really cool. Uh, those early Prestige, I love those. Uh, the Columbia things that Miles did in the 60s were great, uh, which also had great album covers. So you like usually his wife or his girlfriend or some would be on them. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it. you know, it always goes back to Blue Note just because that's that's the core. That's where the, the roots are, you know. But yeah, that's I would have to say that. And I'd also have to say I I would have to bring uh milestones would be another album that would have to come with me. I mean, that's like right behind or next to Blue Train. Those are those are two to, to two hard ones to to pick apart, you know. Yeah.
1: I know it's not easy. I don't, I don't like asking those questions. I know well, I a, but, yeah. it can be really tough to narrow it down to just one because what you say today, I could ask you that same question next week and your answer could be completely different. Yeah,
0: <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. But I mean I, I like the challenge. I, I used to, you know, I challenge my students the same way and and you know, but usually I I usually try to list, you know, say top three or something like that. Just because yeah. one the one to pick is just oh, so hard. It's enough. tough. Yeah,
1: it's tough. Uh, Well, it's been great having you on, Bruce. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tell the story of your life and your experiences and the history of your music and what you've done over the years. Uh, I think a lot of this is undocumented, so you can't just go on to wikipedia and find a page about bruce stalin's so uh this is important you know and for those that are listening to the podcast or watching it hopefully you walked away with something you didn't know you learned something new uh maybe even some of your students who check this out they will walk away with things that they didn't know about their teacher which is always fun
0: (laughs) cool yeah thanks for having me and thanks for you know thinking about florida music you know i mean uh you know it's there was a lot a lot happening in the past there's still a lot happening now i'm sure um and but you know it's such kind of a remote area of the country that a lot of people will you know will never hear about and that, so i think you doing this this uh show is is really important because it opens up i mean it, it made me remember about a lot of stuff in florida from the old days too so uh uh i appreciate the the work that you're doing man
1: Thanks, Bruce. I definitely appreciate that. And, and uh, on that note, kind of closing out the interview, you know, I like to turn over to you any closing remarks you want to share to just fans of yours over the years, supporters, maybe people who just been around uh, anything you want to close out the interview with, I will turn it over to you.
0: For all the people that, I, you know, that remember me from the old days, I hope this has jogged your memory of some things and, and maybe I'll hear from some of these people with some comments and, uh, you forgot to mention this one or what about this guy or or whatever. But, uh, but mostly, I mean, I, my, my message is it always is to people is uh, enjoy music. I mean, in this, in this crazy world that we live in now, music brings us peace and joy and happiness. And so enjoy music as much as you can and go out and listen to live music as much as you can. That's an, another art form that's on the decline, I think, and it doesn't—it doesn't have to be jazz or blues or whatever we talk about. You know, I still go to hear the symphony orchestra as often as I can because, you know, music is—is is what makes the world better place. I think so. Uh, enjoy music every day of your life.